There is an invisible battle that is raging this morning. There are angels here today, the Bible says in the book of Corinthians, that are worshiping with us. They're watching the church. The congregation is much larger than you realize. But in the invisible realm, there is a spiritual battle that is taking place. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in the real meat of the Word today as we open up chapter 11 of the book of Daniel. Today, we begin to unwrap the fourth and largest vision Daniel has yet received. But before we dig into this challenging passage, Dr. Brogy gives a brief background on what's already been taught. Take God's Word with you this morning, Daniel chapter 11. We've been working our way chapter by chapter through this great book. Today we are in the 11th chapter. If you're new to the Bible, find Psalms. It's about dead center. Scan to the right and you will soon come to Daniel. Since the late 19th century, the book of Daniel has been under vicious attack. Humanistic scholars under the guise of quote-unquote Christian scholarship have deemed Daniel to be historical fiction written around 165. And of course, that's based on a presupposition. Instead of it being written in the 6th century B.C., they say it was written around 165 B.C. And they say that based on the fact that they do not believe in prophecy. Look, the key is in the front door. If you can't believe the first words in the Holy Scripture, Barashit bara Elohim hashamayim v'yet haraditz, in the beginning created God the heavens and the earth. If you can't believe those words, you can't believe the rest. And so Genesis and Daniel are the two biggest attacked books in all of the Bible. A professor in one lauded theological seminary teaches that Daniel was written during the Maccabean period. Now you know that between Malachi and Matthew, there was a 400-year period where there was no prophet in Israel. Sometimes we call that the period of so-called silent, the silent years, but they're not silent at all. God writes about what will happen in that 400-year period here in the book of Daniel. And so one student asked that professor, how could he say that Daniel was not written by Daniel but someone who just called himself Daniel, when Jesus in Matthew 24, 15 said, Daniel wrote it. He said, well, I happen to know more about the book of Daniel than Jesus did. Hmm. Well, for the unsaved man, the miraculous goes against his natural mind. And when you come to these 35 verses that we're going to look at today, there is 135 specific prophecies. In each of these prophecies can be corroborated with a study of history, and they have all literally actually been fulfilled. It's one of the mightiest irrefutable proofs to show that the Bible is the only book God wrote. There is no fulfilled prophecy in the Quran or the Book of Mormon, the Upanishad, the Vista, anything you can think of. Only the Holy Scripture has fulfilled prophecy. Now, let me bring you into the context to remind you from this chart here, you can see the book divides into two halves, chapters 1 through 6, largely historical, chapters 7 through 12, largely prophetical. And here in 7 through 12, the second half of the book where we find ourselves, it's filled with visions and dreams of something that is going to take place in the future. And as I noted in our last time together, chapters 10, 11, and 12 form a unit. Now, unlike the dreams in chapters 2, 4, and 5, they are the dreams of others that Daniel interprets. 
Here in this section of the book, Daniel receives his own visions, and an angel or angels interpret what they mean. Now, remember, 10, 11, and 12 are a unit. 10 serves as a prologue to chapter 11. 11 is the vision itself, contains one of the most extensive, longest visions in all of the entire book. And chapter 12, we will see later on, is a postscript. Now, that's the broad context. Let's zoom in on the immediate context. Chapter 11 really divides into two halves. The first half, 1 through 35, is telling us what is going to happen through the first 69 weeks. Remember, this is not irrelated to the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. 69 weeks, a gap of time. We're in that gap called the church age. And then the coming 70th week called the Great Tribulation. He is writing what is happening during that first 69 weeks, and that 69th week ends, as we saw, mathematically, as recorded in Daniel, the ninth chapter, with Palm Sunday, A.D. 32. We're in that space of time, and then when we come to verses 36 to 45, he is going to describe what's going to happen in the final seven years of time. So today, we're going to look at a number of individuals, one who is a type of foreshadowing of the coming Antichrist, and next week, we will look at the actual Antichrist himself. Now, remember what is happening. Seventy years of bondage was dictated by God because of their disobedience. And when we came to the 10th chapter, the first verse, we discovered that the bondage time was over. They They had been freed for two years, but there was a big problem. When they first arrived in Babylon, as Jeremiah the prophet records, everybody wanted to go home. Nobody wanted to be there. But 70 years later, the house of bondage had become a house of business. It had become comfortable to use the metaphor there of the Egyptian time of bondage. Oh, you know, the leeks and melons, they were better back in Egypt. So they don't want to leave. There's somewhere around two to three million Jews in the Babylonian captivity. And according to the book of Ezra, only 49,897 choose to go back. Now remember, this whole prophecy is introduced in Daniel chapter 10 and verse 1, where we are told it is the third year of Cyrus's reign. And something happened in the third year of Cyrus's reign that moves Daniel to go to God in prayer, to lay aside the fancy food so that he can give himself with simple food that takes little preparation to give himself fully to prayer and seeking the face of God. Now, Ezra records what happened in that year. Let me read it to you, Ezra 3 and verse 3. Those that went back, they set up an altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. But the fear of those in the land that terrorize them, paralyze them. And so we read in Ezra 3 and verse 6, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not yet been laid. And so when they finally get the courage to start building, Satan sends some of his emissaries, and they write a letter, if you remember, to the king, and tell them that, tell the king that their real intention is to fortify themselves that they don't need to pay taxes. And according to Ezra chapter 4, the king stops all building. And so here in the third year, Darius gets wind of all that has happened, and, uh, or Daniel gets wind of it, and his heart is broken, 
he is burdened, he is seeking God in prayer. And if you remember in the 10th chapter where we were last time, there is an invisible battle that is raging this morning. There are angels here today, the Bible says in the book of Corinthians, that are worshiping with us. They're watching the church. The congregation is much larger than you realize. But in the invisible realm, there is a spiritual battle that is taking place. We don't wage war against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And we saw there, there was an unnamed angel who brings an answer to Daniel's prayer. But on the way to bringing that answer, he is intercepted by a fallen wicked angel called the Prince of Persia. Satan has his demons, and they are organized in ranks. But Michael, the archangel of God, intervenes and allows the messenger angel to get to Daniel to give him the vision. And so when the 21-day angelic battle is over, God's angel gets to God's man. That's chapter 10. And it is a picture of what we read in Ephesians 6, that we wage war not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And let me just say parenthetically, I'm not surprised that the devil did not want Daniel to get this message. Number one, we're going to read a foreshadowing of his coming man, but next week when we come to verse 36, we're going to read of his actual man. The Old Testament says more about the Antichrist than the New Testament does. And we're going to learn about the Antichrist next week. One, he doesn't want Daniel to know about this coming world wicked ruler, but neither does he want him to believe in the veracity of God's word. And what we read here that Daniel records for us proves the absolute authority of the Word of God. Satan has always tried to get people to question what God has said. All the way back in the garden, did God really say that? Certainly God didn't mean that. And so what we have here in this chapter in 35 verses, from Daniel's perspective, it was future. It hadn't happened yet. He's writing about 500 years before Christ. From our perspective, every single prophecy except the final one of the coming Antichrist has been fulfilled to the nth degree. And so when you study this chapter, if you study it carefully, you have to come to one of two conclusions. You either have to say the Bible is the Word of God or it's just a fairy tale book. Now I'll be truthful with you. If you came today for a barn-burning sermon, you're not going to get one. And if you don't like history you probably will be asleep before we are done. But I am committed when I go through a book of the Bible to preach every single verse. And to be honest, I've never heard this section of Scripture in my life preached on in a sermon context. Now, you will learn it in a seminary. You might explore it in a small group Bible study. I've never heard it preached from a pulpit. And most pastors, when they come to it, they just summarize it in about two minutes. And then they get to the meat of the chapter, as they would consider it, but this is meat too, of the coming Antichrist. But we're going to work through it, verse by verse, and I know I'm going to lose some of you, so come back next week. But let me just remind you, there are a lot of people who are named in this chapter, or who are alluded to in this chapter. But there are three principal people as you can see on your outline, that we're going to explore three great figures, Alexander the Great, Antiochus, or excuse me, Alexander the Greek, Antiochus the Great, and then Antiochus the God, as he referred to himself. So we're going to start this morning first with the world of Alexander the Great. 
and he opens by teaching us something about the success of Alexander. In the first four verses, and what I'd encourage you to do is literally keep your finger on the text, because it is so detailed, and you'll lose your place. So try to keep your finger on the verse. If you don't have a Bible, come to meet the pastor tonight or Thursday night, and we'll get you one. But you need a Bible in this church to really grow. You need one, and you need to bring a paper edition and not one of the electronic ones. There's a place for them. I've, I had one of the earliest electronic Bibles they ever produced, but there are no substitute for the paper Bible this morning. Verse 1, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and protection for him. So we need to ask a question. Who is speaking? And precisely, who is the I mentioned here in verse 1? Who do you think? No, not Daniel. <laughs> uh, remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. They're added in the 12th century in the Latin Vulgate Bible to help people to find their way around the Bible. And sometimes they can be helpful, sometimes they can be distracting. And so the last sentence of chapter 10 needs to be read with the first sentence of chapter 11. Let me read it to you. It says, yet there is one who stands firmly with me against these forces, except Michael, your prince, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose, this unnamed angel of chapter 10, to be an encouragement and a protection for him, that is Michael, your prince, Michael the archangel. So this is a continuation of thought from the 10th chapter. This angel who is speaking to Daniel here is referring to a past incident that happened two years earlier when this visitor went to Michael the archangel and aided him in something that he was doing. Just as Michael helped him in the third year of Cyrus, chapter 10, verse 1, this unnamed angel helped Michael the archangel on an earlier occasion. And so these two mighty angels of God care and give mutual assistance to each other. Now, who is this unnamed angel? Most expositors would probably conclude it's Gabriel, and they're probably right. And they do so for three reasons. Number one, up until this time in the book of Daniel, it's the angel Gabriel who delivers both visions in chapters 8 and chapters 9. And so it's assumed that he will deliver the vision here in chapter 11. Second, it's the angel Gabriel, who is known for bringing special revelation to the people of Israel. In fact, he is the one who appears to Zacharias in the New Testament, the father of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Israel's Messiah, to, to tell him about um, this one called Jesus and his son John, who's going to lead the way. And by the way, Gabriel is the only named angel other than Michael. Now, people say, what about the angel Moroni? People ask me, he's in the Book of Mormon, and he's a moron angel, and he's not found in the Scripture, all right? Third, since Michael is an archangel, and since this angel provides mutual assistance, no doubt he is an angel of great rank. So for that reason, most assume it's Gabriel. Do I know that for sure? No. I can't speak where God hasn't speak, spoken. But it's interesting, in either case, to chew on to recognize that there is a holy war that is happening even this morning in the invisible realm. And let me add, it's not by accident that God tells us that this event happened, notice, in the first year of Darius the Mede. Remember Darius the Mede? I told you chapters 1 through 6 happened chronologically, but the visions in chapters 7 through 12 can be overlaid over 1 through 6. They happen in and around chapters 
uh, 1 through 6. And if you remember in the 6th chapter, Darius the Mede was the one who was in control when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. And because of the supernatural work of God, his attitude is totally changed. In Daniel 6.26, we read, Darius speaking, I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So it's God's miraculous deliverance of Daniel that caused Darius the Mede to totally reverse his attitude towards the Jewish people, and that certainly made him uh, amenable to Cyrus's degree. Remember, this is the Medo-Persian Empire. So there are two men who are ruling, Cyrus the Persian and Darius the Mede. And so behind the scenes in the heavenly realm, there is this battle that is raging, and in this case, in favor of God's people. We read last time, let me read it to you again, Ezra chapter 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, knowing what had happened to Daniel in the lion's den and the decree that his co-ruler made, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he put it in writing. So God moves in the heart of the king. The king's heart is in the hand of God. And God moves in the heart of Cyrus the king. Verse 3 of that chapter says, Whoever there is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. And the God of Israel, he is God who is in Jerusalem. So 150 years before this king Cyrus is ever even born, Isaiah prophesied he would do that. And he not only prophesies he will do it, even before the man is born, he tells us the name of the king, namely Cyrus, who will do it. In Isaiah 44, it is I who says of Cyrus, God is speaking, he is my shepherd, he is my servant, he is my instrument, he is my tool, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. So God stirred up the heart of Cyrus. You say, did Cyrus have a choice? Yes, he was a free moral agent. But very often God orchestrates the circumstances such that he wanted to let the Jewish people go. And I believe that God used Daniel's experience and the lion's den, among other things, to work in this man's heart. And so with the Medo-Persian empire in place, the natural question would be, what is the future of this new empire? And so Daniel here in verses 2 and 3 um, speaks in addition to these two reigning kings that there would be three more Persian kings. Look at verse 2. And now I tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. And as soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And of course, that's exactly what history records. Darius the Mede is followed by three more kings. Cyrus's son, Cambyses, is the first one. He's followed by a guy named Pseudo Smyrtus. Pseudo means false. And he uh, says, because he looks like Cambyses, that he's the son of Cambyses, he convinces the people that he should be king, and so he takes the place of the throne. But when they find out he's a fake, 
a third king comes, and his name is Darius I, a different Darius than Darius the Mede. In fact, Darius I is the one who's mentioned in the book of Ezra chapters 5 and 6. Ezra is divided into two parts, so you got to keep that straight. I won't go there, but then there's this fourth king, Xerxes the fourth that's mentioned. Um, he is found in the book of Esther. Remember uh, Ahasuerus? Now, if you're using the New International Version, they don't call him Ahasuerus in the book of Esther. They call him Xerxes. And very often, there are many illustrations in Scripture, a king could have two names. Now, the Hebrew text says Ahasuerus, but his more common, best-known name in his history is Xerxes, so they use the more common name. But this is why you need a literal translation of the Bible. But if you remember, Ahasuerus was the king who, you know, had that beauty contest and so forth. So we read of this fourth king that he will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Xerxes had one of the largest armies in human history. It was an army of two and a half million men. And he invades Greece. However, he's unsuccessful. He's defeated by the Greek army, and he goes back home somewhat despondent. And Xerxes, though, of course, never ever forgets what the Greeks did to him. And the Greeks don't forget what he attempted to do to them. And so they want revenge. And they get revenge through another king that's mentioned in verse 3. You know him, Alexander the Great. And a mighty king will arise... And he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. And he did just as he pleased. We saw him pictured in an earlier vision. And he conquers the world in lightning speed. And at the age of 33, he sits down and he weeps because there are no more armies to conquer. He suddenly dies unexpectedly, and then his kingdom is divided. Look at verse 4. By the way, this is being written... Hundreds of years before it happened. This is history pre-written, verse 4. But as soon as he has arisen, as soon as he rises to power, uh, at the zenith of his career, we learn his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out, notice, toward the four points of the compass, though not of his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others beside them. So he dies... And the scripture prophesies that none of his descendants would succeed him. Now, his half-brother, Philip, tried to succeed him, but as soon as he steps up, he's murdered. His illegitimate son, Hercules, tries to succeed him, and one of Alexander's generals murders him. His other son, Aegis, who's born shortly after his death, was put under guardianship, but he is soon murdered so that he cannot take the throne. In fact, then his sister, Cleopatra, queen of Epis, she tries to take the throne, and she's murdered. And before long, there's no living relatives left for this guy. None of his descendants, not one, is left to take the throne. So after Alexander dies, confusion reigns in the kingdom. And verse 4 prophesies that his kingdom will be parceled out to the four points of the compass. Here you can see it on this picture here. He has four generals, as history records. And the names of those four generals, Cassandra, he's given Europe. Lysimachus, he's given Asia Minor. Seleucus is given Syria. Syria is right north of Israel. And Ptolemy, he is given Egypt, south of Israel, in North Africa. 
And it all happened just as God said. So now beginning in verse 5, the prophetic focus turns towards uh, from the success of Alexander to the successors of Alexander. You see it there in your outline? Verse 5 refers to the southern point of the four points of the compass, referred to in verse 5 as the king of the south. Let me read to you. Then the king of the south will grow strong, along with one of his princes, who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion indeed. Now, when you read south, the wise, careful reader would say, south of what? The king of the south is someone who's south of Israel. Why? Because directions in the Bible are given from Israel. Israel is viewed by the prophet Ezekiel and others as the center of the world in God's mind. If you take a flat relief map that we put in our classrooms in the 1960s, the United States was in the middle. Well, if you were to put a flat relief map on the blackboard today, God would put Israel in the middle. And so north, south, east, and west in the Bible is measured from Israel. And so the king of the south, as you read all the way through this passage, think of Egypt. The king of the north, all the way through this text, think of Syria. And so in this verse, the king of the south, that would be General Ptolemy. And when we come to verse 7, he will focus on the northern point of the compass, north of Israel, of another one of Alexander's generals, Seleucid, who is the king over Syria. And so when you think of the king of the north, think of the king of Syria. Now, there's a lot of different kings of the north and kings of the south that are mentioned all the way through this chapter. But just think in terms of the big terms, north and south, Syria and Egypt. So the northern Seleucid kings hate the southern Ptolemy kings, and for years they're going to fight one against the other. And why does he include these two points of the four generals? Because sandwiched between Syria and Egypt is this little patch of land we call Israel. Next week, Dr. Brogy will continue his discourse on Daniel chapter 11. We'll see that just as it was prophesied, Alexander the Great's conquest gets parceled out to the four corners of the earth. And the turmoil that's taken place throughout the centuries in the Middle East always includes tiny Israel as the main character. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling us at 877-787-7478 and requesting program DAN17, entitled, The People Who Know Their God. This is the first of two messages on the final vision of Daniel, so for the complete study, you may wish to order program DAN18 as well. Now your son or daughter or nephew or niece may soon be graduating high school, and if that's the case, you might want to consider sending them the entire study of the book of Daniel. This 19-message set would make an excellent and inspiring graduation gift, and it will strengthen and build a spiritual foundation for the leaders of tomorrow. Just call us at 877-787-7478 and ask for the series DAN100. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at Daniel chapter 11 and search the scriptures. <music> 